Hello, and welcome back to the Hearsay Podcast, a joint project between Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary Chapter, and CJSW 90.9 FM. This is a podcast where University of Calgary law students discuss a variety of legal topics with a variety of professionals in the field. We'd like to emphasize that the information you hear today is legal information and not legal advice, as we are law students and not lawyers. This podcast is purely for informational purposes. If you do require legal advice, please consult a lawyer, as there is no substitute for a professional. My name is Nana, and I'll be one of your hosts for this episode, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sean. We will be speaking today with Kelsey Sitar in a two-part discussion about Legal Aid Alberta in the context of access to justice. Kelsey is a well-regarded criminal defense lawyer that deals with complex litigation and legal appeals. She's a partner and co-founder of Sitar and Melcherik, vice president of the Calgary Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, and a Tyler's advocate. Before we begin, in the spirit of reconciliation, we would first like to acknowledge that hearsay is recorded on Treaty 7 territory. We acknowledge that Treaty 7 territory is a traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, consisting of the Gainai, Bikani, and Siksika, as well as the Sutena Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge that many First Nations, Métis and Inuit, who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have gone before us. We make this acknowledgement as an act of gratitude to those whose territory we reside on or are visiting. Welcome to the first part of our podcast on access to justice. Access to justice is a basic principle of the rule of law and an essential component of a functioning democracy. In Canada, the idea of access to justice was officially encoded in 1982 in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, section 7 to 14, which amongst other things, recognizes the right to a fair trial, to be presumed innocent until proven guilty, the right not to be unlawfully detained, and the right to retain and instruct counsel. To that end, our federal and provincial governments fund nonprofit organizations that support our justice system by providing legal services. Legal Aid Alberta is one of those organizations and the specific subject of this podcast. We hope this discussion will help listeners understand how the Legal Aid Alberta system works and that system's impact on access to justice. With that, let's get straight into our discussion. Kelsey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what Legal Aid Alberta is, and uh, your relationship to Legal Aid Alberta? So I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I practice primarily in the city of Calgary, and that means that I have my own private practice, and I have clients that I will assist that are both legal aid clients and uh, private bar clients. Um, primarily, my practice is complex litigation. I do also assist individuals who've been the victim of sexual assault, um, and I also do appeal work. And so Legal Aid Alberta is a nonprofit organization that is primarily government funded, and they provide legal representation to people who can't afford it, that need a lawyer. So there's certain circumstances where individuals are constitutionally entitled to have a lawyer, and when they can't afford it, the government must pay for that lawyer. Criminal cases are, are often those examples. Uh, child welfare proceedings is a good example of that as well. So as a private bar lawyer, I'm what's called a roster lawyer, meaning I essentially do contract work for legal aid from time to time. So they will offer me a file and ask if I'm willing to assist someone. And then I, I agree to do work at a, a 
generally a reduced rate um, to assist the person who legal aid is funding their, their defense. Thank you for that answer, Kelsey. Can you elaborate on Legal Aid Alberta's funding structure? Yeah, so the governance agreement is a tripartite agreement between Legal Aid Alberta, the Law Society of Alberta, and the government of Alberta. And it essentially breaks down how Legal Aid is going to function and and how it's going to be funded. And essentially what happens for funding is that the Alberta Law Foundation is an organization that takes the interest earned on lawyers' trust accounts because lawyers aren't entitled to to keep that money when when people put it into trust, whether it's for their real estate transaction or to pay legal fees. And the accounting to try and attribute that money back to the client would be too challenging. And so essentially every lawyer's trust account is set up to have all of what would have been interest paid by the bank go into this one central bank account that's managed by the Alberta Law Foundation. So the Alberta Law Foundation makes some contributions to the legal aid uh, funding structure. The provincial government makes contributions to that structure as well. And the provincial government's contributions incorporate uh, contributions that are made by the federal government. So every year, the federal government uh, contributes. It's been the last few years about fifteen to seventeen million dollars. They provide that directly to the province, with the understanding and the explicit direction that that's to provide legal aid services for Albertans, and a portion of that is even earmarked to go towards criminal cases specifically. So when we look at annual reports from Legal Legal Aid Alberta, it indicates an amount contributed by the provincial government, that is collective of both their contribution as well as the federal government's uh, contribution. So what the government governance agreement does is it sets out what services the provincial government is going to agree to fund and for which Albertans. So it sets out the requirements financially and otherwise to qualify for legal aid services. And it sets out what types of services the legal aid is directed to provide. And the current governance agreement is better than some of the past because what it essentially says is, government, you've you've agreed that you're going to provide criminal representation to people who qualify. You have to pay for those services. So whatever they cost in a particular year, given the demand for those services, they have to pay for the people who qualify. The problem becomes who qualifies and who doesn't because if you don't qualify, the government also doesn't have to pay for, for your legal services. In the governance agreement, the sections on Legal Aid Alberta's budget and plan employ a lot of language about cost effectiveness and maximizing dollar value. Does that bear any implications for you as a roster lawyer? Absolutely. So the general rule as a roster lawyer is you're going to conduct a legal aid file as you would for a low-income client. So you're not going to incur frivolous expenses on any file, but you are going to incur less expenses if the client is of limited means. You're going to limit how much photocopying you have to do, whether or not you're parking. Certainly some big corporate lawyers bill dinner every night to a client's file. That's not happening on legal aid files. Um, And so that's part of it. The other piece that it has implications for, though, is also those rates that the government has agreed to pay, because it's not only the rates they're going to pay lawyers, but they also set the broader tariff, which is sort of the schedule of fees for legal aid files that include things like what are we going to pay for an expert? And the the practical implication of that is a legal aid defended individual is going to have a significantly lower hourly rate available if they need to hire, for example, a forensic pathologist, a, a doctor who's going to do investigation into how someone died than what the Crown Prosecutor would have. So the Crown Prosecutor is going to be in a position to essentially hire any expert they'd like with some limitations. 
upwards of six, seven, eight hundred dollars an hour, and that's going to be funded by the provincial government. But when the accused says, I need a pathologist who knows about shaken baby or some other very specialized area, they'll be told, well, you can have two hundred dollars an hour. And so practically it has implications that make good sense that we're not going to just treat this like any other cash file that might be in a big corporate firm, but it can have some really significant impacts for people who are trying to advance advance a defense on legal aid. Have you seen any instances in particular that uh, speak to this imbalance that you're seeing between the funding that is granted to prosecution as, in, as opposed to funding that's granted towards the defense? Absolutely. So I think you can see it in most criminal courtrooms if you go in for any serious prosecution. The first thing you'll notice, even if you you don't have a law degree, is when you look on one side of the courtroom, you'll usually see at least two Crown prosecutors and sometimes even a paralegal as well on, on one side of the courtroom. On the other side of the courtroom, you'll generally see one defense lawyer. And so that's the first place you start to notice it, is that not only do the Crown have police and other people that are there to assist them in in preparing for a file and and organizing disclosure and material and coordinating witnesses, um, they also have more bodies in that room to to help run that, that prosecution. Whereas Legal Aid Alberta, by default, will only fund one defense lawyer. They won't fund what's called second counsel for, for most of these files. There are certain limited circumstances where you can get some funding to have someone else there for certain portions of a case. But the default and what you see most often is that's not funded. So you're going to have one defense lawyer. There's been litigation in the province as well, where defense has essentially had to ask a court to order that legal aid pay a higher amount for an expert because the the Crown was able to hire a particularly specialized expert um, and the defense can't find anyone comparable to assist them in preparing for the, the file without similar sorts of funding. So it, it certainly is something that has been litigated in the province as well. Criminal cases in Canada are prosecuted by the Crown. In terms of access to justice, how does a person accused of a criminal offense qualify for Legal Aid Alberta services? Yeah, so it's it's generally in criminal cases a two-part test. So the first part is going to be, is the case serious enough? And this is measured purely on a metric of, are you at risk of going to jail? Now, criminal cases can have all sorts of other serious implications. People can be at risk of deportation. They can be at risk of losing their employment. They can be at risk of losing housing, access to children, all sorts of other things. And that doesn't get weighed into the current uh, eligibility assessment. It's purely an interest of are you at risk of going to jail? And in some limited circumstances, immigration consequences may be considered. And then the second piece is financially, do you qualify? And the concept here is, could you afford to pay for a lawyer privately? Could you go into a lawyer's office and write them a check and get them retained to represent you in court? And so there's certain thresholds that are set. They call them the financial eligibility financial eligibility guidelines or FAGs, which is what I use because it's easier to say. And so the FAGs will depend on number of people in your household and the household income for your household. Those rates were being adjusted annually up until about 2010 when, because of the old funding model for Legal Aid Alberta, they were essentially finding that they never had enough money at the end of the year to pay their bills. So they had to cut corners somewhere. They weren't getting any more money from the provincial government. And that was when the market really started to tank. And so lawyers' trust accounts weren't doing all that well. And so, of course, Alberta Law Foundation contributions descended. So the 
the fags at that time were cut by 30%. And they've slowly been bumped up a little bit by a little bit over the last number of years until most recently, earlier in October, when the government ordered a 8.225% increase. They're now back to roughly slightly above what they were in 2010. And when we think about that comparatively, we've seen 30% inflation since 2010, but we now are telling people with the same income as they had in 2010, you can afford to pay for a lawyer. So to put that in context, for a family of four in the city of Calgary right now, if you make more than about $40,000 a year, legal aid will tell you you can afford to pay for a lawyer by yourself. Uh, The most recent cost of living index in the city of Calgary said a family of four to achieve a basic level of of basic standard of living required $80,000. So you can be significantly below what it takes to make ends meet. And that's just make ends meet month to month, not getting ahead. Um, And they will tell you you can pay for your own lawyer. The other problem with that is legal fees privately always depend on how serious is your case, how much time is it going to take in court. Some hours, like uh, lawyers, like family lawyers will bill hourly, but most most criminal lawyers will bill on a block fee basis based on the number of court days that your matter is going to take. The financial eligibility guidelines do not incorporate any of that whatsoever into the assessment. So whether you're facing a half-day theft trial or a two-week serious you know, sexual assault or some other serious, serious charge, we're going to tell you at that same financial cutoff, well, you can afford to pay for a lawyer, even though those legal fee bills would be significantly different from each other. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM and online. Do the qualification requirements create barriers to access and do these barriers lead to more self-representation? Yes, absolutely. And so there's been... Um, a fairly recent study actually done in Alberta that was funded by the Canadian Bar Association, Alberta branch, looking at the rates of self-representation in Alberta courts. And more importantly, what kind of cost savings do we get if we reduce the number of people who are self-represented? So studies that have been done on this all over the sort of common law world have shown that most people who are self-represented, there's a small percentage of those folks who want to represent themselves and they have a right to do that if that's what they wish to do. The people we're concerned about are the people who say, I'd really like a lawyer, but I can't afford one, or I can't qualify for legal aid for whatever reason. And that seems to be the significant portion of people who find themselves self-represented in criminal courtrooms. And what that means then is we, we can have a number of different things happen. For some of those folks, we will appoint a lawyer for a very limited purpose. So if it's a domestic type charge where they have a, a standing relationship with the with the victim, then we will fund a lawyer to come in and just do that cross-examination. We're not going to allow an abuser to cross-examine their their victim. But other than that, that person's on their own in terms of trying to represent themselves. And the practical implications are not just for them, but for other people trying to access our justice system. So judges will do their best to try and assist someone through a trial if they're self-represented, but they have to remain neutral. And more importantly, of what happens in a criminal courtroom has happened outside of the courtroom. It's the preparation that's gone in for counsel beforehand. It's assessing what types of applications may need to be filed, what other witnesses may need to be located. A trial judge, for very obvious reasons, can't assist someone with that. And so their ability to help is, is hamstrung not only by their role and their need to remain neutral, but what they have access to and what they can have access to. The other thing that this means is a lawyer who is well-versed in criminal law, can be quite efficient. 
And when you get a experienced criminal defense lawyer and an experienced crown prosecutor, those two people can be very efficient in figuring out whether or not a case actually has to go to trial. If it does have to go to trial, is it have to go to trial on every single issue or can we narrow it down to just be about the ones that matter? And so as the inverse, self-represented individuals, trials take much longer. Um, they, they require more court time. And the implication for that is not just for that accused who's needing to miss more work if they have a job or they're having more and more time as the trial has to get extended and, and the matter continues to go on. But it has implications for other people who are waiting for their trials, who now that court time is, is tied up and they can't get access to the courts. And I think a really good example of this is in our family court system. We have family and civil cases in particular in the court of King's Bench that can't get trial dates. And sometimes they've booked a trial date for sort of two years from now. And they'll get to that trial date and then they'll be told, well, we, are, we only have so many judges. We only have so many clerks. We only have so many courtrooms. We have to give priority to the criminal matters. So we know you've been waiting for two years for your family court trial or your civil proceeding. You're going to have to wait longer because you're not the priority today and you don't get to go. And so a lot of that ties back to if we can be more efficient in our system and we know that people having counsel makes those matters more efficient, we save hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour by funding and having a lawyer available for those folks. Um, it would make everything more efficient for everyone. The The soft number that was reached by the economist who did the CBA study was we could put in $20 million into legal aid and to reduce the number of self-represented persons, and we would make that money back. So not even that it would be $20 million we're putting in and we'd break even, like we'd make that money back. And so we can go more than that and we may start to just sort of have it make sense and be worthwhile and and reduce um, wait times and all sorts of other benefits, both for the people that are in the justice system and society at large. But at 20 million, we will make our investment back um, just by having more lawyers in the building to help folks that need them. What are some of the issues you run into in the courtroom when you have people that are choosing to self-represent in terms of how the justices look at it, how the prosecution looks at it, and how other defense attorneys approach it? So it puts other defense attorneys, if we're presuming we have a matter where there's maybe more than one accused, so maybe one accused does have counsel, but the other does not, um, it puts that defense lawyer in a really difficult position because the self-represented person quite quite reasonably may come up to that lawyer in the hallway and say, can I ask you a question or can I get some advice from you? And, and lawyers are under very strict ethical obligations that our duty is to our client and to no one else. And so the problem for that defense lawyer is they can't really give that person any advice. They can't give them any sort of input because at the end of the day, they have to be looking out for their own client's best interest. So sometimes if it's a basic procedural thing where that's not going to raise any sort of concern, they can certainly tell the person, you know, where to stand or, you know, where something is in the disclosure, something sort of straightforward and basic. But there's not a whole lot they can help them with because that's not their role. That's not why they're there. And then from a Crown's perspective, they also can't be giving any legal advice to the accused. They can't be seen to be trying to influence them in any way. It can put them in an incredibly challenging position given their role as a sort of mini minister of justice. And so the the self-represented accused sort of finds themselves standing in a courtroom with nobody who's really able to, to talk to them a whole lot except the judge. And then when the judge comes down, again, they have to stay neutral. They have to be the arbiter of this thing at the end of the day. And both sides need to feel like they got a fair hearing where the, the judge wasn't playing favorites or on either side of the of the room. 
But the real problem for the judge, unlike the Crown and the defense lawyer, is they don't know anything about this case. They know what the charge is on the charging document that's before them. If there's been any sort of pretrial motions filed by either side, they may have a bit more context. But that's all they know. So they don't know that there's an alibi witness in the disclosure package that the accused maybe doesn't know the significance of. Um, They don't know what other legal issues may be there that are important for that individual to be bringing to their attention. They don't know what they don't know. And so it puts everybody in a really challenging position. And it can put an accused in a particularly challenging position if depending on what kind of case they're facing, because of course, people go to law school to learn all about the rules of evidence and all about the rules of procedure and what can and cannot be advanced as a defense in any particular case. Um, And an accused person often doesn't know that and there can be really unreliable information available on the internet. So they may have done their very best and come to court as prepared as possible, not realizing that everything they've planned and the strategy they intend to deploy is not going to be permissible and a judge is going to tell them they can't do that. And and then what? Then we're all standing there without any ability for this person to properly put forward their defense. Can you elaborate on how roster lawyers in legal aid Alberta system work, especially in the context of the tariff and certificate system? So basically, um, Alberta right now has about 1,200 roster lawyers on this sort of list of people who have agreed to to be on that roster and consider and, and potentially represent individuals who've qualified for legal aid services. Um, right now, there's about 40% of the lawyers on the roster who do criminal law are five years of experience or less. Um, and so the other 60% being more than that in various uh degrees. And the vast majority of roster lawyer work that's done for legal aid is done by criminal defense lawyers. And that's just a function of the type of work the government has agreed to cover and, frankly, the type of work that's constitutionally mandated that that the government needs to provide counsel for. And so for a roster lawyer, essentially what happens is you... If you agree to take a certificate, if you agree to assist a person, then there's an existing sort of schedule of fees. And it it may be easier for folks to think of as they would their family doctor, right? If your family doctor sees you, there's certain boxes they check for what they did during that appointment. And each of those has a fee associated. And that's what they can bill at the end of the day for the service that they've provided to you. And if you come back to see them three weeks from now as the family doctor, there may be different things that they're going to bill for on that particular visit. And so it's a similar sort of system. There's a fee for bail hearings, for example. And it's the one that I like to use. It's a it's a good example, I think. So under the roster, um, a, a or under the tariff, a roster lawyer can bill um, one hour, which is currently a just, it's now $100 for new certificates accepted after the October 5th announcement, but for any existing certificate, so most certificates defense lawyers have in the province right now, that's an hourly rate of 92.40. Now, it's not an hourly rate in terms of every hour you work in preparation for that bail hearing, you're going to bill 92.40. It is a lump fee. You get $92.40 to to get someone release uh, pending trial. That includes all of your disclosure review, the arrest call from your client, likely phoning around to members of their family to try and find somewhere that they can live and someone who may be willing to sign a bail for them if they need to, attending the courthouse to run that bail hearing or speak with the Crown about whether or not it needs to be a contested hearing, waiting your turn to be able to have your matter called because a a list may have two, three hundred people in a docket court for nine o'clock. Not everybody's getting spoken to at nine o'clock. Um, And then actually running that contested hearing. And for all of that work, which can be hours and hours and hours and hours, you're making $92.40. So it largely runs on a block fee basis like that. There is very few times where a 
a roster lawyer is actually billing on a criminal file at an hourly rate. So while the most recent bump that occurred on October 5th by 8.225%, that was not an accidental number. It's the precise number you need to get 9240 to be $100 an hour. Um, and so that's why it was selected. And all of that money was federal money. So when I talked earlier about how the feds give money every single year and tell the province this has to go to legal aid, and more importantly, a significant chunk of it has to go to criminal representation under legal aid, that's the money that's paying for that fee to now go up to $100 an hour. But the important piece is that that's only $100 an hour. Where are lawyers actually earning hourly on a particular task they're assigned to do? The vast majority of those tasks are on a block fee basis that comes nowhere close to the number of actual hours a lawyer is going to have to work to do the task they're billing that block fee tariff item for. So um, when you do the math, it's it's pretty discouraging, but lots of defense lawyers will tell you it, they're lucky if they're billing $25 or $30 an hour um, when they do the actual math on how much work they're doing. Um, and from that, because we're contractors, you're then paying your office overhead. You're paying your paper and, and pencils, you're paying your assistant, you're paying your phone bill um, before you're taking any of that money uh, for yourself as a salary. How long does a roster lawyer have to accept a certificate? And how long does it take for an accused to be connected with a lawyer? Yeah, so it, it, it sort of depends if you're asking me right now in the middle of defense job action or if you're asking me the, the ordinary course. So the ordinary course, if someone was out of custody, so they're on bail and they're in the community, um, that process could take a week or two weeks um, for legal aid to process that application. That assumes that the person has access to all of the information that they need. Um, legal aid will often want financial documents and other material from an individual, and some of that can be uh, challenging for for folks to gather up, particularly when we think about lots of people who are making a legal aid application are um, vulnerable and, and marginalized individuals who don't maybe keep a, a great filing system of all of their tax returns. Um, many are underhoused. Um, and so that can delay things depending on how much um, material legal aid is asking for and how readily accessible it is to the individual. If people are in custody, generally it's a it's two, three business days and they're getting a lawyer appointed. Now, right now with defense job action, we are seeing individuals who've been in the system and and coming back to court over and over and over again, telling courts or telling duty counsel that they've been unable to obtain a lawyer, that um, there was, I observed something recently where the fellow indicated six lawyers now in counting have said no to his legal aid certificate. Um, and there was the recent article uh, by CBC broke the story about a significant number of individuals in the Calgary Remand Center who are unable to secure counsel. So right now it, it's taking a significant period of time because of um, defense job action. The other place that this is having an impact is on those sort of criminal representation adjacent certificates, if I can call it that. So both the people who are being appointed to to perform a limited function in a domestic trial, for example, by cross-examining the victim, or uh, where complainants or, or victims of sexual assault are entitled to have legal counsel if certain applications are filed by the accused. And so those are generally applications that are trying to use their private records or to try and use um, past sexual history that, you know, past sexual conduct that they've been involved with um, to cross-examine them at the trial. The victim's entitled to have a lawyer at the hearing that's going to decide if, if they should be allowed to ask those questions. 
And so we've already had in Calgary at least two trials, to my knowledge, that have not been able to go ahead because those those victims have not been able to find a lawyer willing to take those certificates right now. Um, we've had other domestic files as well, and there's been some in Edmonton as, as well. So it's um, it's right now there's significant delays in people getting access to the lawyers they need. Following our discussion in November, Kelsey reached out to inform us that the job action was paused on December 21st, 2022. This was after the government demonstrated its commitment to a properly funded legal aid system with an interim increase of the hourly rate to $125 from the previous $100 rate, effective January 1st, 2023. Kelsey also made clear that there are issues that still remain. The block fee system doesn't adequately reflect the work that goes into preparing for and ultimately running contested hearings. And of course, access to representation for low-income individuals still remains a top priority in the ongoing negotiations between the CDLA and the government of Alberta. As the press release from the Calgary Defence Lawyers Association following the job action pause notes, they are eager to discuss these issues with the government because the best way to promote the efficient delivery of justice is to reduce the number of self-represented litigants and to ensure experienced and knowledgeable lawyers remain willing to take legal aid files. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Kelsey. We appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge with us and our listeners. We'd also like to thank all the listeners for tuning in. This has been part one of our podcast on access to justice. We hope you'll join us again in March for part two. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast. We are proud to present you with legal information, but please remember that this is legal information, not legal advice. If you require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. The Hearsay Podcast is a joint project between CJSW 90.9 FM and Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary chapter. If you'd like to hear more podcasts like this, the Hearsay Podcast can be found on Google Podcasts, Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.